This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. In 2018, two black men were arrested in a Philadelphia Starbucks after using the bathroom without placing an order. The incident made headlines nationwide, and it was deemed that the men had been the victims of racial bias. Starbucks opted to close all of its stores for an afternoon so that its employees could take an online diversity training course. That decision brought into question of whether these types of diversity and bias training courses actually are successful and achieve the desired goals. A recent study from here at the Wharton School looks at what components of that training work and don't work. The researchers presented a program to over 3,000 volunteers of a global company with offices in various countries around the world, including here in the United States. Those results were published in a scientific journal, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America, almost exactly a year after the Philadelphia Starbucks incident. The study is titled The Mixed Effects of Online Diversity Training. The lead research researcher is Edward Chang, who is a fourth-year Ph.D. student in the Decision Processes Group here at the Wharton School. He joins us in studio, as does Katie Milkman, who's co-director of the Behavior Change for Good initiative, as well as Endowed Term Chair for Excellence in Teaching and tenured professor here at Wharton School, who also worked on this study. Good to see you both. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for Thank you. Thank you. It is interesting, Katie, that that in the paper early on, it is mentioned that there isn't a lot of research to this point on the effectiveness of of these types of diversity programs. Why so, do you think? Well, it's actually really hard work to do. And and there is a large body of research that looks at the effectiveness of diversity training. It's just never really been done the way we were able to do it, which is a really large scale study in a real organization as opposed to an educational setting and measuring actual behaviors rather than just how people say they feel or what they say their attitudes are right after completing it. And you can see why that might be hard to do, because you have to convince an organization to open itself up for this kind of a project, to let you actually measure the behaviors of their employees downstream. Right. Uh, it was quite a negotiation to get there, and we feel really lucky we found a great partner willing to let us do something of this scale and magnitude on this important question. So, Edward, take us through exactly what the research was and how, how you went about it. Yeah, so as Katie was saying, there is actually a lot of research on the topic of diversity training. It's obviously a hot topic. So many companies use it. But one of the big innovations in our study is that we did what we call a field experiment. So we randomized people into taking either diversity training or what we call placebo training. So it's a training about a topic that was unrelated to bias or stereotyping or or diversity. Uh, And this is really important because it helps us disentangle whether effects of diversity training are due to people being willing to volunteer for diversity training or just taking any training at all. We can really see what's the effect of doing diversity training specifically. So we had about 3,000 participants. Uh, They were randomly assigned to take one of our online trainings, one of which was a diversity training. Uh, And then through this diversity training, we essentially use the best behavioral science we know to try to kind of get people to reduce their biases and stereotyping mm-hmm. and teach them strategies about how to be more inclusive in the workplace. So, so what were the, the results after them going through these, these training programs? What were the results that you first found out before you were able to really discuss with them what, the, what they really need to know? Uh, so we measured the results of our training program in a couple of different ways. So first, at the end of the training, we had survey questions. This is kind of standard uh, in a lot of other research. We measured their attitudes at the end of training to see kind of do they show any evidence of kind of learning the content. Mm-hmm. But what we really cared about was measuring their behaviors afterward. And particularly, we unobtrusively measured behaviors in a variety of different ways 
in the months following the training to see did kind of what they learned actually stick and did it change their behaviors in the future? So how important is that part of it, Katie, in terms of being, you said, uh, the challenges of of negotiating with a company to be able to do this type of work in the first place? One is doing the training part of it, but two, actually seeing the physical reaction of a lot of these people. I think, you know, this is this is the whole ball game because we hope, we think organizations are doing these diversity trainings because they're hoping to really change outcomes in their organizations right. and to promote diversity and inclusiveness, not just a change in what people say they will do, but how they actually act. And, you know, will it will it change real behaviors? And that was the missing ingredient in so much past research. So being able to actually measure, did we change the way people treat one another and the yeah. way that they mentor in these organizations? It was a huge game changer. Is there is there how much of a concern is there when you're talking about this type of research, Edward, that somebody may do a one hour program, one hour training, and they are doing it just to do it because it has kind of been offered to them just to kind of present themselves as wanting to take the program. Yeah, that's a definite concern about diversity training. And it's actually, there's been a lot of research by other researchers suggesting that uh, one reason why diversity training might fail in other organizations is because the organizations and the people in them kind of just feel as a kind of a box to check, that they're just kind of doing it sure. just to say that they have done it. Right. Or, you know, some people were criticizing Starbucks because it sounds kind of like they were just doing diversity training kind of as a perfunctory thing to be like, okay, we know something bad happened. Now we're going to kind of slap this band-aid of diversity training. But one of the things, one of the reasons why we're excited to run this research is because we're really not sure what effects diversity training really has on people and their employees and their behaviors. Now, in looking at, at the different uh, pieces that were involved here, part of this was gender. Mm-hmm. Part of this was also general bias as well, correct? Yes. Yeah. So uh, our field partner was primarily interested in uh, looking at how diversity training would affect people's attitudes and behaviors towards women. Partly it's because it's a global company, and so gender issues are kind of relevant uh, across countries. Well, when you look at something like race, which is very, very salient uh, and important to think about in the U.S., it's maybe not as salient in other countries. And we were working with a global company. We had participants from 63 different countries. And so a lot of the focus in terms of measurement and content was on gender. Well, and you, you've mentioned, and we've talked with Katie about this in the past, is the fact that obviously uh, the issues around women in the workplace and how they are treated are, is a huge topic right now. And so how is there a difference in mindset from, say, here in the United States with with other countries, maybe in Europe or Australia, wherever it might be? Uh, I mean, I think a lot of the issues about gender are, again, are relevant in all these different countries. Um, When we think about kind of other social categories like race, I just think that, uh, you know, for example, in China, they're not there isn't a very large black population, for example. So they're probably not as worried about uh, discrimination against black people in China. Katie? Yeah, I, I agree. I think the the gender issue is much more generalizable to the global population. And that's one of the reasons that we uh, focus so much of our attention on that. And, and I think that our results are actually interesting in both groups. And so we can say something pretty important about both race and gender training. So I'm right. glad we were able to do both. But but I do think the thrust um, was because of this international focus. You also note the fact that, uh, that this is obviously important work, but you did it with one organization. And whether or not you can expand and see greater information if you were able to do it with two, three, four, you know, a larger number of organizations as well. Yeah, it's a really good point. So a limitation of this is absolutely it's just one setting and every employer has its own unique culture. Uh, 
and that could interact in interesting ways with what we've done. An important thing to note is this is an employer that wanted, they cared so much about this issue that they were willing to do this big, uh, rigorous test with a team of researchers and put the time and energy in needed. So obviously they're already way on one end of the spectrum in terms of their handling of this issue. And that's certainly a concern. Like if we if we were to port this into an organization that was struggling even more with these issues that wasn't already, I'll say, pretty progressive in terms of their treatment of this topic, right. we might see different things. I guess it also brings up the, the question, Edward, uh, of of the importance of the culture within the business, because the company that you worked with, as you said, 63 countries, I think it was, that, that this company uh, has presence in? Uh, I think it's in more. They're potentially in more, but okay. we had participants from 63 countries. Okay. And you're talking about being able to gain information in a company setting from people that obviously have a, a wide range of views, as you said, in, in China, you're not going to have as many as much information on African Americans as you would say here in the United States. So it's it's a unique dynamic to be able to gain this information from so many different locations around the world. Yeah, uh, I do think that's one of the strengths of this research is that we were able to collect uh, information from people from many different countries, and that a lot of the research typically on these topics is focused on just, for example, U.S. employees. And the fact that we're able to get people from all these different countries, uh, we're also able to do what we call call heterogeneity analyses by kind of exploiting variation in the fact that, you know, people in different countries have different attitudes. Mm -hmm. And we could use that kind of to get better understanding of maybe what the psychological mechanisms going on as a result of training were. So then what were the conversations like with some of these employees after they took the test and and having them try and have a better understanding of things that they can work on when they're when they're in the workplace. Uh, so, the way we uh, we kind of do research is that we don't actually necessarily talk to the people. Okay immediately afterward. Right. We do do survey questions, which is kind of like multiple choice questions. And in general, the main results that we found were that people were more supportive of women after taking a training. Right. And this effect was particularly true amongst people in countries outside of the U.S., where we think maybe their attitudes towards some of these topics were maybe slightly less progressive than people in the U.S. Just because in the U.S., I feel like we've uh, talked a lot about issues of bias and stereotyping, and particularly things like implicit bias and unconscious bias already. And, and in fact, we have evidence that uh, that this is true. So when we measure attitudes among untrained employees who who took, you know, a placebo training, so people right. who basically, they didn't go through diversity training, but they're in our study. When we measured their baseline attitudes, they were less, um, they, they were less open to sort of in- expressing that they were wanted to be inclusive of women when we looked at the international employees. So we, we measure that, and then we can see how that relates to the responsiveness. And well. just, just for people to understand, the placebo training is basically what? Yeah, it's a great question. So it, it was basically a training on a different topic. It's a, it was about psychological safety, which is uh, a construct that is important in the management literature. And it, it basically is you know ways to make your teams feel um, more comfortable coming forward if somebody discovers that there's been a problem. So right. very unrelated to diversity training. So the importance of having that component as part of this overall study ends up being what? Yeah. So the importance is that um, we can have two groups who both vol- raise their hand. They volunteered and said, hey, I want to do a training. I'm willing to do a training. Right. And both of them actually experience 60 minutes of training on something. But right. one of them experiences 60 minutes of training on diversity and the other on an unrelated topic. Right. So everything about them is really identical, except um, 
one learned about diversity. And so we can compare apples to apples. Everybody raised their hand. Everybody spent 60 minutes watching, you know, material on a screen. Right. And and now the only difference between these groups is what that material covered. And we can say we can isolate the effect of our training and say it did this to people. It, it changed their attitudes and behaviors in this way. Can you also I, I wonder, can you gain information, Edward, from the fact that it, it is a one hour tra- that time element is one hour for everybody and whether or not as you move forward with these types of trainings one hour is the right area than the number that you need to be at is it two hours you know is there some sort of differentiation in the success uh, of the training depending on the the length of time that somebody spends in it yeah so the reason why we chose one hour for our intervention was because partly it's that that's pretty common for diversity training when we kind of looked at other companies how they implement diversity training oftentimes it's just these kind of one-off very short like one hour maybe two hours kind of thing right and so we think it's kind of pretty valid or ecologically valid it kind of reflects the reality that we see but the results of our training were not particularly large particularly when we look at behaviors well we did see attitude change in most groups for behavior change we didn't see that much movement particularly among the groups of people who kind of historically have held the most power in these organizations such as men and white people uh and so our findings, or my interpretation of our findings, are that actually probably one hour isn't sufficient. That if we expect, we can't expect a one-off diversity training to kind of solve all your problems relating to bias and stereotyping in the workplace. Uh, it could be potentially one part of a multi-pronged solution where you combine diversity training with other changes you're making to processes and structures to kind of reduce influences of bias and stereotyping. Or it could be potentially a multi-day thing, or where you do training multiple times uh, over many over a longer period of time. And maybe that would be more effective at changing people's behavior. But we'd need more data. So we, we you know, that hasn't been tested either. Maybe that would also be disappointing. Right. But the key finding here is, as Edward said, this isn't enough. It's very clear that this isn't enough. And, and it may not be a dosage issue. So one answer to this isn't enough is, oh, great, let's increase the dosage. But it may be that this just isn't the way to solve these problems in organizations. Yeah. And we have to make really serious structural change. So, um, you know, we don't want to say like, oh, just up the length of your diversity training. That's not our takeaway. Our takeaway is an hour doesn't do it. Right. And so um, we have to find other solutions. Maybe it's a higher dosage. Maybe it's structural change. And honestly, my instinct based on the other work we've done and the other you know literature on this topic would be we need to be moving towards structural change it, beca- it becomes a, a very important topic i think every, every because as we've talked on the show a couple of times there is more and more focus within companies especially here in the united states we talk about it in, in that perspective here on the show there's more and more focus about the culture of the company about how employees react with one another what are the components that you want to have within the office complex do you want to you know be able to to give uh, do, you know, do you want uh, employees to be able to have a gym in the in the actual workplace? So there's so many components at play here. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, I mean, how do you change cultures is a huge question, uh, and obviously something where I think if you ask a lot of people about who study culture in organizations, they probably would not say that the way you change culture is to do an hour long training about what you want the culture to be. Right. And so it's maybe kind of a it's an interesting question that for diversity questions that that seems to kind of be the solution that companies often buy is like, okay, we're going to do an hour long training and expect that to change the culture. Katie? I think Edward said it perfectly. So it's hard to add any value other than saying yes. <laughs> but but, but that, that component of it being the one hour training Getting back to that for a second, I think is is a point to to uh, to stretch here because of the fact that 
sometimes I think people see a, a great value in being, as you said, you want you have people that want to do training. They want to be part of this. And then there are other people out there be like, oh, my God, I'm going to be you know bothered by I have to do this for one hour out of my day. And I've got so many other things that, that I have to work out. And again, that's an individual uh, mindset from person to person. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so. So this one of the things that's actually great about this training in some sense, it, it depends on if you're like a glasses half full, half empty person, but uh, type person. But we tried to deliver, you know, we invited roughly 10,000 employees at this company to take it. And about 3,000 did make time for it, which, right. you know, maybe you think that's low, only 30 percent. I thought that was pretty amazing uh, yeah. that that 30 percent of the employees would get involved. And and it raises questions about if you did want to do something that's at a higher dosage and for longer, you know, how much would your participation drop then? Even an hour was a lot to ask. Uh, but so so those are all issues that organizations have to to deal with. And I think it's part of the reason a lot have ended up with one hour as their solution. It's just so hard to convince people to devote time to this. And again, that points towards structural change, because yeah. if you make those structural changes, now you're not asking time of people. You're just changing the way the organization operates, the way hiring happens, the way promotion happens, the way mentoring happens uh, in, in ways that will hopefully facilitate a more inclusive workplace. And speaking of mentoring, mentoring was part of the research that, that you did in terms of the value of having mentoring programs within a, within a particular company. Yeah. So one of the behaviors that we measured was we actually created, we worked with our field partner to create a program to be able to see who people choose to kind of informally connect with as an idea like and it's an informal mentorship program. And that was actually kind of where we saw some of the most interesting behavioral effects in that we kind of designed this uh, measure to see were people being more inclusive towards women and racial minorities, as in are they more willing to mentor women and racial minorities in the workplace? But the biggest behavioral effect we actually found was that for women in the U.S., our training actually seemed to prompt them to seek out mentorship, to use this as a program to be proactive about taking uh, to about seeking out mentorship from senior colleagues. So it really does seem that the biggest behavioral effect of our diversity training was actually kind of convincing women in the U.S. to kind of lean in and be more proactive about their careers. Is there a significant difference between the the acceptance of, of doing mentoring with a, a woman in comparison with a, a, a minority at this point in terms of the research that you did? Uh, so in our research, uh, we did not see a difference in willingness to kind of say yes to men versus women. Right. Uh, but we do think that there are potentially differences. We just know that in general for people's social networks that people like people who are like themselves. Right. And so men are typically more likely to have social networks that include other men. And so in particular for senior people, they're just more likely to, in general, not necessarily saying in our particular organization, uh, to have uh, – to have mentees who are men. Were you able to also, in the scope of the 3,000 people that, that, that actually did the, uh, the, the program for you, in terms of the number of senior executives compared to uh, the rank and file, I guess is the best way to say it, that were doing this type of, uh, of mentoring and that wanted to be involved in this type of program and the impact that that aspect of it can, can have in terms of how senior executives think about this and, and how the remainder of the company think about it? Uh, so one of the things with our sample is that the field partner is that mo our training was particularly targeted at people who are kind of lower in the hierarchy. Okay, right. So we didn't have a ton of managers. Partly that's just because, because when you're running these experiments, you want to have as many people as possible to take these trainings. And there are just many more people on the sure. bottoms of organizations than at the tops. Sure. Uh, and so we're not able actually to say a ton about kind of how our training maybe differs in terms of receptiveness. 
based on how kind of senior you are. Uh, so we mostly focus on kind of experiences of more junior people in this organization. Katie? The groups that we in, in advance said we wanted to focus most on and therefore focused most on in our analyses were women um, in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. and men inside the U.S. and outside of the U.S. because we thought there would be big differences in the receptivity um, internationally versus domestically and by men and women. And so that's really where we focused. We anticipated that the seniority issue was going to be hard just because the numbers are small. And sure. one of the things that this experiment was trying to do that was different than past experiments was have really a large group that we could study these 3000 people we knew that was going to mean not a lot of senior folks if we zoomed in so that's why we focused on on gender and uh whether this was in international or in the u.s and we do see really interesting things along those dimensions those are sort of our key takeaways are that this uh the effects of online diversity training really were different okay. for these different populations um with women in the u.s responding in the way that edward described they're more proactive seem to be actually responding by saying i need to take actions to help support my own career when we expected actually the effect of the training would be uh, for everyone to try to help women more. Instead, it was women trying to help themselves. Right. Should we ha- should we have an expectation when you're talking about these issues around this type of training that the reactions should be more similar across the globe? I mean, will we, will we expect to be able to get to that point as a culture in general to have the same mindset about women in the workplace, about gender diversity, about about all of these issues? I think that would be a lot to expect. And so that's the reason we, you know, said at the beginning, when we set out to do this work, we did something called pre-registration, which means we basically um, wrote a plan for how we'd analyze our data and said, these are the things we expect to see. And then when we got the data, we actually looked for them. And that's why at, in that plan, we said, one of the key things we're going to look at is international versus domestic, because we know that it's just going to, it's going to be different. This right. is an important area where there's a lot of variability. And, and this is one of the reasons in the analyses Edward did, he actually broke things down by um, country and looked at that too and looked at how different countries responded in different ways. So it, it added a lot of richness to the analysis. I think it would be much too much to ask if we wanted to, you know, we, we got to get to a place where the whole world is the same. Yeah, right. and I'm not even sure that's desirable at some right. level. I guess it's desirable if we're all more socially just, right. but uh, but it is hard to imagine a world where there's not going to be variability in these attitudes. Edward? Yeah. Uh, and one of the things, one of the things that's suggestive about the data that we collected is that you can kind of think about maybe people's journey towards being super inclusive towards everyone as maybe like a continuum or a ladder or something right. where kind of prior to any sort of training people are at different points in their journey and we think that kind of our one hour intervention kind of moved people along toward that journey but it was only one step right. and so people who were maybe had less progressive attitudes or less supportive attitudes towards women to begin with they seem to show an uh, a movement on terms of making their attitudes more supportive and more progressive, but didn't really show any evidence of behavior change. But the people who have had the most progressive or mo- most supportive attitudes to begin with, they were the ones who showed evidence of behavior change. Right. And so it does suggest that maybe kind of we don't have data for this. We need to collect more data. We'd love to do more research on this. But that if you kind of do continuous trainings or different kinds of interventions that maybe can keep moving people along this point to get to everyone to this point where they're now changing their behaviors. But right now, that's not where we are. So if this was step one, is there a natural, when you think about the the, the future, is there a natural step two and step three that is already kind of starting to formulate in your, in your mind right now? Uh, I don't think we have a step two or step three yet. Uh, but if companies would like to partner and do more research on this topic, we would love to, we'd be very receptive to that. Katie, is there is there when you think about the, the the future of diversity training, is there a path that you think that that we need to consider more? 
I think there's a lot of things we have to think about. One of the things that was a limitation of this is that it's online. And I, I do, you know, we know that um, face-to-face interactions and group interactions where people can really um, have meaningful conversations about a topic can be more powerful ways to change behavior. And so I think um, one natural next step would be to think about building the best possible uh, training programs that actually are live and yeah. and and include dialogue back and forth between trainers and trainees and see how much more that can move the needle. But again, I'm most optimistic about structural change, uh, yeah. especially after doing this project. It, it is interesting because, as you said at the, at the top, it is a process just to get a company to agree to this in the first place and to be able to to take that next step is going to present, I would think, some of the similar challenges that you had in this research as well. Absolutely. I, and, you know, I, this was a, a mountain that we moved with with our amazing organizational partner. It really was a beast to do this. I think that's one of the reasons it hasn't been done before. It was it was, he- it was hard, right? There's a lot of le- legal concerns. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, you know, emotional concerns that are very reasonable. Yeah. Everybody's worried for lots of good reasons. And so it's going to be hard to do it again. How much do you, after now all of this research is done, how much does the company itself better understand kind of some of the components that are at play within their firm and then also potential change that that company may want to make moving forward with some of some of the, the, the issues that may be there? I think they feel they've learned a lot. And in fact, one of the things we haven't talked about that I think was particularly interesting to them and to us is that um, when we trained people and showed them information about gender bias, it actually had some positive spillover effects to uh, both attitudes and behaviors towards racial minorities, which was absolutely fascinating to us and to this organization. It was not clear that that would necessarily be the case. So right. that we learned a lot about which subpopulations respond to what, um, what the training is really doing, and, and the fact that it has these spillover effects to some degree. I think, I think we all feel much smarter about what the benefits and, and limitations are thanks to this work. Edward? Yeah, I agree with everything that Katie said. <laughs> well, good luck. All, all the best with future research, and thanks for coming in. Great. Thanks for I greatly us. appreciate it. Edward Chang, who's a fourth-year Ph.D. here at the Wharton School. Katie Milkman, uh, who is co-director of the Behavior Change and Good Initiative uh, and also a uh, tenured professor here at Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.